This week on the Backtable Podcast. So I introduced the balloon and I pushed the thing back up. And at this point, Ken turned to me and said, you know, that's not the way daughter does this. I said, how does he do this? He said, well, you know, he inflates the balloon above the lesion and then he yanks it down. Oh. Inflated. Okay. And I'm, I'm looking at him and I said, Ken, I've read a little bit about this. I never read anybody yanking this thing or even moving it while it was inflated. Are you sure that's what daughter <laughs> said or did? Because I've never heard him say that. And I've heard him speak a number of times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, well, you know, we didn't get very far doing what we are doing. Sure. So let me see what the hell happens. <laughs> so I inflated the balloon and I yanked. Holy cow. I yanked it down about an inch and a half. And all of a sudden, there was a gush of blood out of the puncture site. There was a pulse. And I'm like, I'm a hero. (laughs) So I did an NGO. It looked pretty good. And I said, okay, we are done. And I said, let me get the hell out of here as fast as I can. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, backtable.com. Now a quick word from our sponsor. This discussion is supported by Philips OBL and ASC Solutions, Symphony Suite, the industry leader in opening cardiovascular office-based labs and ambulatory surgery centers. With the convenience of a single trusted point of contact, they offer more of what you need to turn your passion into reality, including a full range of high-performing, highly specialized equipment and services, devices, financial options, site planning, guidance on construction partnerships, and more. When it comes to opening an OBL or ASC, Symphony Suite delivers convenience and support as the expert you need, the partner you trust. To learn more, visit philips.com slash symphonysuite. And now back to the show. Got an exciting episode for you today. We have uh, Dr. Sauce here with us today. We're going to be talking about his career and how that fits into the history of interventional radiology, newly retired. And let's see if I can give like Dr. Sauce like a reasonable introduction. So SIR president, 86 to 87, SIR gold medalist in 2009, number of publications, over 140, 60 plus book chapters and reviews. Charles Dotter lecture and on and on and on and now recently retired uh, professor emeritus from Cornell. Is that okay, Dr. Sauce? And uh, just got the uh, SIR Foundation's Leadership in uh, Innovation Award this year. Man, the awards just won't stop coming, right? As long as I'm, I keep breathing. Well deserved. All right, Dr. Sauce, if we could just start out, can you kind of talk us through your training in radiology. Like, what did the training look like then? Um, You did a diagnostic residency, and then talk about your fellowship and how that kind of differs from the fellowship that we have today. Starting in uh, immediately after my internship at uh, Montefiore, I uh, began my training at uh, New York. At the time, it was called New York Hospital, the New York Hospital, the Society. So I began my training back in uh, 69 in and it was a three-year diagnostic radiology residency. I was lucky because it was just the year previous. 
they stopped having a four-year radiology residency that included a year of therapeutic radiology, radiation therapy, and that would have probably killed me, literally. <laughs> and uh, so it was a three-year training. I uh, got very friendly with the guy running interventional. Well, at that time, it was called cardiovascular and interventional radiology. There was nothing interventional about it. It was cardiovascular. Sure. I had a two-year fellowship. I think I was the first fellow at Cornell to receive this training. And there was a uh, fellowship that was in part sponsored by the NIH. The training was two years, which turned out to be a real blessing. I was trained by Harry Baltax, who had been trained by Kurt Platz and uh, was a fresh young attending at Cornell, and David Levin, who came from Los Angeles and uh, became an attending at Cornell just the same year when I started. So it was a pretty green crew, and uh, fortunately they knew a little more than what I did. So basically, uh, my training consisted primarily of some diagnostic arteriography, and specifically, most of our time was spent doing coronary angiography. We did the coronaries. We read out the coronaries. In addition to that, we uh, worked with the pediatric cardiologist to do congenital heart disease, cardiac caths, and we were responsible for the imaging and for the dictating of the films. So I became a cardiologist before I became an interventional radiologist. So the second year of the fellowship was really a gift because I was able to uh, remain a trainee, but I was increasingly given independent responsibility for doing cases and uh, reading them out and supervising the next year's fellows and the residents. So it was an absolutely idyllic existence. And I fell into all this because during my residency, during a rotation in uh, this program, Harry Baltax and I began to talk about tennis, and he invited me to come out to the suburbs to his home, and we began to play tennis. And then when it came time for me to decide what to do with the rest of my life, and I was trying to figure out how the hell I would not die of boredom doing diagnostic radiology, he offered me a position. And of course, I jumped, because it was the ideal compromise. I didn't have surgeon's hours, at least I thought I didn't. Right. I didn't have to talk too much to patients, at least I thought I didn't. It just turned out to be a wonderful two years, and of course, David Levin stepped into it, and he was a terrific person, and he played a large part in my life after I finished my fellowship, but we'll get to that. Sure. So, Tom, like at the mood of the time, like so when you're going through fellowship and then also residency, were people calling it interventional radiology or you were calling it cardiovascular and specials radiology? And and was, was your fellowship representative of what trainees across the country were doing or was it a little bit disjointed then? Actually, the society of the SCVIR, mm-hmm. the old SCVIR, the Society for Cardiovascular and Interventional Radiology, was uh, formed the year before or the year I became a fellow. There was really very little organized training going on. Everything was pretty ad hoc. 
I had enough trouble staying alive myself, so <laughs> keeping my head above water. So I wasn't too interested in what anybody else was doing. Now, there was an informal New York Angel Club. The uh, New York Angel Club met once a month, and I remember we had to bring cases, just about anybody and everybody who did any angiography came to this. And we showed cardiac, coronary, as well as some peripheral vascular and diagnostic cases. This was just at the beginning when Stanley Baum introduced GI bleeding and Charlie Daughter introduced using uh, vasopressin infusion with Joe Rush for uh, GI bleeding. So I was very, very lucky. I really got in on the ground floor. Drainages were just beginning. John Evans incidentally, who was the chief of radiology at Cornell, had done the first transhepatic percutaneous cholangiogram. So he was a good mentor to have, even though he was way too busy running uh, radiology to even though I was alive. But uh, it was still a fun atmosphere. So then from fellowship, if you could talk about, you know, maybe the first arc of your career, like the first decade, you're a newly minted attending. If, if I read your CV correctly, you actually had a brief stint where you were away from New York. Did you take a job with Harvard and then came back to Cornell? So what happened was when I finished my fellowship, I started my fellowship at the end of my uh, three-year residency, so that would have been uh, 72, and uh, had my fellowship at Cornell till 74, and I stayed on one year as an attending. At the end of that, or sometime during that year, David Levin was asked to uh, come up to the Brigham, and uh, he asked me whether I'd be interested in uh, joining him there, the Peter and Brigham, Brigham and Women's Hospital now. Mm-hmm. And uh, since I had gone to medical school at Harvard and I had a wonderful time there, I uh, indicated to him that, yes, I'd like to do that. They were doing basically the same stuff we were doing at Cornell, primarily coronary angiography. And so I stayed up there with Dave Levin. He was a real runner. Okay. And uh, he was training for the marathon. And uh, I had never even heard of such a thing as a running shoe. And I you know Dave Dave had a very expensive pair of running shoes and I went up and bought a pair of running shoes instead of running in my tennis shoes. And so we were working I mean I was working my way up to several miles and Dave and I were good running partners and became pretty good buddies. And uh, sometime and and in the meantime Harry Baltax had recruited Eric Martin who just finished his training at Columbia with, under Bill Casarella, who later became a big shot in the ACR mm-hmm. and became chairman of radiology at Emory. Anyhow, Eric took my position. Sometime in, in uh, March or April, Dr. Evans decided to retire, and Joseph Whalen, who was the vice chair, was going to take over as uh, chair of radiology at Cornell. So... They together called me, and, uh, oh yeah, in the meantime, Harry Baltax had decided that he was going to take the chairmanship of radiology in Omaha, Nebraska. So Dr. Whalen and uh, Dr. Evans called me and wanted to know whether I'd be interested in uh, coming back to Cornell and becoming division chief of (laughs) 
cardiovascular interventional radiology. At the ripe old age of uh, 35, I guess, actually, I, I became so audacious that the following year, Joe Whelan offered me a clinical professor that he would put me up for a clinical professorship. And I said, you know what? I might as well wait another year or so until I become a, I, until I can become an unqualified full professor. So he giggled, <laughs> and in two years he put me up for an unqualified professorship, and I became the youngest uh, full professor at Cornell, I think maybe ever. So in the meantime, Eric Martin, who was trained by Bill Kessner, was now at Cornell. When he found out that they had asked me to come and take over, he rightly was not very happy. And so the first phone call I had made was to Eric, uh, who, uh, whom I asked, I said, Eric, I know that this must be a tough pill for you to swallow, but would you be willing to stay on? And I promise you, I'm not going to treat you like an underling. He said in his very eloquent British English, well, Tom, that's very kind of you, but I believe there will be a job for me at Columbia, which meant fly a kite, Tom. <laughs> but I said it much more nicely. Yeah, when it comes with a British accent, it feels easier. Well, the bottom line was I uh, came back to Cornell in uh, July 1, and not only was, was I division chief, but I also was chief cook and bottle washer. I, at that point, had no, no fellows, and so there I was. I was on call every night. There was a 45-minute uh, drive without traffic which was a good thing because most of the time I was doing it without traffic for GI bleeders. Mm -hmm. This was the heyday of GI bleeders. And so there I was back at Cornell just about every night doing GI bleeders. I became pretty good at that. So I couldn't wait for the year to pass. Now, in the meantime, I uh, think it was around this time or the year after that Grunzig, Andreas Grunzig began to run his courses in uh, coronary angiography and angioplasty in Switzerland, in Zurich, at the Kantonspital. And so I signed up, and he wrote back, uh, we'd be happy to have you, but one of the conditions for enrolling is that you have to send me about at least 25 angioplasty cases, peripheral angio angioplasty cases, to demonstrate your competency. Well, how many had you done at that point, Tom? Well, this was a problem because I hadn't done 25 <laughs> cases. Ken Snyderman, who, he was coming to interview with me. Somehow, miraculously, I had scheduled a, an iliac angioplasty for that day when I was interviewing him. And in those days, there were no balloons, or rather, the only balloons were, that were available were the so-called corset balloon catheters that were the early balloons, and I think it was actually, not sure whether it was Charlie Dotter who made them, and they basically were a Teflon tube outer catheter with eight slits in it, and the slits were near the tip of the catheter, and if you put in a uh, an internal catheter, which was like a latex balloon, uh -huh. the corset, those slits, contained the expansion of the spherical, ever-compliant balloon that blew up like a, a balloon, but it was uh, constrained by the corsets. 
And so it basically applied pressure over a very, very small length of the vessel, if you can imagine. It's almost like imagining the uh, sphere of the Earth and the longitude, latitude. There were four vertical slits parallel to the long axis of the thing that constrained the balloon. And so Ken was there. I I don't know where the hell I had gotten one of these catheters. I think I may have brought it back. No, I, I wasn't in Switzerland by this time. So, but I, somehow or other, I got a hold of one of these things, and I scheduled the case. And the surgeon who scheduled it did occasional vascular surgery, and he was a lovely guy, a lovely young guy who trained at Cornell. Coincidentally, he was one of the first, if not the first, black surgeon at Cornell. So he was a big deal and a very cute, very smart, very nice guy. So I don't know where he got the balls, but he allowed his patient to become my guinea pig. So with great fanfare, they brought the patient down and everybody's standing around watching. Kenny is there. I said, Ken, have you ever done one of these? He said, no, but I saw one on TV. No, he actually had seen daughter do one the day before. Okay. Portland in Oregon. Sure. So I figured that was one more than I've seen. <laughs> and I, it sort of was the closest thing to the Three Stooges. But I mean, I had done angioplasties using the Fernando catheters. Do you guys even know what a Fernando catheter was? Daughter's original catheter was the coaxial dilator set. And what he had was he would introduce a Teflon dilator over a guide wire through the stenosis and coaxially over the first catheter, which didn't have a hub on it. Mm-hmm. So you could pass the second catheter over it. Okay. The second catheter was no longer really tapered to a tip. It was tapered to the outer diameter of the first catheter. And you push that over, and that went through the lesion. And there were two or three thick-walled dilators that were each tapered to the other, to the preceding one. Yeah, sure. And you just kept passing these over until uh, you got some kind of an angioplasty. So there were a couple of things wrong with this. Number one, the tip was fairly blunt. Mm. And if there was any loose clot and or atheroma, you simply showered it distally. The second problem was that as big as a hole as you wanted to create at the angioplasty site, it was an equally as big hole you created (laughs) at the uh, puncture site. And there were no closure devices. The only closure devices was manual compression for a good 30 minutes to an hour. In any case, I had done that and with variable results, but this was my first quote-unquote balloon angioplasty. Sure. So I put this thing in, and I introduce it. You know, I do a careful angio, and I carefully introduce it to the stenotic segment. And I said, okay, Ken, here goes nothing. And I inflated the balloon, and of course it squirted right out of the lesion. Immediately, right? It's a perfect sphere. (laughs) So I said, well, I think what I have to do is probably, I can't probably push it enough high up upwards so what I'll do is I'll inflate it partially just above the stenosis, and then I'll pull it back a little bit, and I'll try to inflate it all the way when I have it in the narrowing. 
And there was a relatively short segment narrowing. So I figured this would work. So then it squirted below. And I played with it for a little while until I thought I finally sort of caught it. And uh, I did a post-angio shot. I pulled out the uh, latex balloon mm. catheter and I injected some contrast. Nothing much had happened. <laughs> nope, nothing bad happened either. Nothing, nothing bad happened, but nothing great happened. It was worth <laughs> celebrating, you know. <laughs> and so at that point, I said, well, uh, let's try this again. So I reintroduced the balloon and I pushed the thing back up. And at this point, Ken turned to me and said, you know, that's not the way Dotter does this. I said, how does he do this? He said, well, you know, he inflates the balloon above the lesion and then he yanks it down. Oh. Inflated. Okay. And I'm, I'm looking at him and I said, Ken, I've read a little bit about this. I never read anybody yanking this thing or even moving it while it was inflated. Are you sure that's what Dotter <laughs> said or did? Because I've never heard him say that. And I've heard him speak a number of times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, well, you know, we didn't get very far doing that, doing what we are doing, which was according to previous directions. Sure. So let me see what the hell happens. <laughs> so I inflated the balloon. I looked at all the rules and I yanked. Holy cow. I yanked it down about an inch and a half. And all of a sudden, there was a gush of blood out of the puncture site. There was a pulse. And I'm like, I'm a hero. (laughs) (laughs) So I did an NGO. It looked pretty good. And I said, okay, we are done. And I said, let me get the hell out of here as fast as I can. So that worked. So on your post-NGO, you had some luminous... Not so fast. (laughs) It worked. I mean, okay. it looked okay. I didn't really have a whole lot of time to look at it. Sure. So I figured I'd better get the hell out of there before something else happens. So I pulled the catheter out on the table, and I had pressure. And about three or four minutes in, I noticed that the pulse was disappearing. Mm-hmm. And within another five minutes, I no longer had to worry about holding pressure <laughs> because there was no pulse. And at this point, I... Uh, called the surgeon, he came down and he said, what's going on? And I said, well, you know, I did an angioplasty and we had a great pulse. Here's the angiogram. And uh, I immediately pulled out the catheter and began to hold pressure. And then the pulse disappeared. So he looked at me and he said, so the whole thing thrombosed, right? So well, probably. <laughs> I said, okay, we'll take him to the OR. Which he did. Sure. And the entire iliac artery was clotted. So that was my first angioplasty, or first balloon angioplasty. In any case, Ken then took the job. So after all that, Ken was like, oh, this is a great place to work. I want the job. Well, I didn't, th- I didn't think that I would be giving him a great recommendation, <laughs> nor did he. So, so he took the job with me, and the two of us continued on, and we then had two fellows and two attendings, and that was the year when we actually really began to do angioplasties, but using, continuing to use this uh, crazy balloon, mm-hmm. but I learned not learned not to yank on it, and I built up a caseload large enough to satisfy Grunsik, who then invited me to his meeting, 
which was where Bill Casanova from Colombia and I traveled together for the second annual course at the Kantonspital. We watched coronary angioplasty. In those days, the coronary angioplasty balloon that Brunswick was using had no guide wire lumen. Oh, wow. So he put it in through a guiding can. It had a mm-hmm. wire that you could pre-shape on the tip. And uh, so he just basically navigated it from a guiding catheter in the ostium using the shape wire mm-hmm. through the stenosis and uh, did the uh, angioplasty. And that seemed to work pretty well. So we became... I don't know whether we got it. I think I actually got a diploma sort, which over the years I lost. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember I, we came back to New York uh, with a bunch of Schneider balloon catheters. Did you buy them over there and you just carried them on the plane back with you? Yeah. Okay. And yeah, Well, okay. So the truth is I have no idea. I may have ordered them. <laughs> No, I mean, I, you know, that was in 76. Okay. I remember I, I got them. All right, got you. Acquired them. And then, well, so when I said that then, it's a bit of a misnomer. Mr. Schneider in his garage could make only a limited number of things. I, did, I still remember it was a bright blue thing, very pretty. Brunswick at that point, or a couple of years later, began to work with USCI Bard who then began to make catheters in the U.S. But at this point, Mr. Schneider and maybe an assistant were hand-making these things. Wow. And I remember I came back to New York, and soon after, I had the balloon. Now, I became a celebrity in New York because I was the only one. All I know is that uh, at the next NGO club, I showed a case using this catheter. After that... Of course, you know, this was in the days when catheters were still re-sterilized. Right. All diagnostic catheters, these things were re-sterilized because they were expensive. It was years later that they finally figured out that all the pyrogenic or often pyrogenic reactions patients had after a diagnostic arteriogram were most likely due to some foreign substances that were left from blood products and or the sterilization products, and uh, the FDA put an end to it for a while, made it a long while. But in any sure. case, the balloon catheter became a treasure, and I could have made a lot of money because what happened was people began to call, and they knew I was re-sterilizing it, and they said, listen, I have an iliac coming up. Can I have the catheter? And it, it was an 8-millimeter by 3-centimeter long catheter. So one size. So you have this one size balloon. Yeah, one size had to fit all. (laughs) Or all had to fit one size. All right. So I still remember they would call up and I said, listen, send a cab. We will send somebody down with the catheter and take good care of it because it's the only one. Wow. And whoever breaks it... (laughs) is in deep shit. <laughs> it really lasted for several months. Okay. And then I can't remember what happened. And so that was my uh, introduction to being a uh, catheter landlord and renting it out. So this was this is your early foray into balloon angioplasty. So 
how many cases were you doing? And then what did the next phase of angioplasty look like? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming like after this. It's well, so I need the... to go back to, to coronary angiography because yeah, yeah. that became an interesting story too. So in the meantime, the arrangement with uh, C. Walter and C.W. Lillehei, who had been at Minnesota University of Minnesota and was an interesting character, he was sort of, he was sort of the Donald Trump of uh, cardiothoracic surgery. He was known as, even though half his neck had been dissected away for I don't know what, he patronized whoever it was that he could patronize. Uh, he was a fabulous surgeon. He was not known for showing up early for his cases, so the residents and fellows opened chests and closed chests. Wow. But when it counted, he was there. <laughs> he did not like the adult cardiologists. And so I, the arrangement had been up until he arrived on the scene that I would do the coronary angiography, and if the patient needed a cardiac cath, they either came back another day or there was the cardiac cath lab and my lab were next door to each other. So the patient got shipped over by one of us to the other, or we repunctured the following day, whatever. So they did the cardiac cath, and I did the uh, coronary angiography. So one day, CW comes over reviewing the coronary angios. And by the way, he was the only guy who actually ever came down to look, or he was one of the internists had no idea which end of the coronary was up, and so they hardly ever came down to look, but he always did. And I actually liked him. He was a great guy. So one day he turns to me and said, Tom, he says, you know, it doesn't make any sense to ship these patients all over hell to those idiot cardiologists. Can't you do a cardiac cath? Can't you do a cardiac output in the valve area? And I looked at him, and I said, of course I could, having no freaking idea. How to do either. <laughs> either of those things. I knew how to get a gradient. Sure. And I had a uh, textbook <laughs> that I carried back with me from the Brigham. There was a uh, cardiologist called Grossman. It was a pretty obnoxious character, but he wrote a, wrote a pretty good uh, textbook of cardiac catheterization. So I opened up my Grossman, and I always kept saying he was such a gross man. I hope he's not alive and listening <laughs> I highly doubt he's listening, but maybe. <laughs> well, at some point. But you know what? It's okay. I mean, he and I actually got along. He was just cool. a little difficult. So I opened up my Grossman, and I made a couple of phone calls, and I figured out, as, as it was, we were already doing cardiac outputs. Actually, the, we did the ejection fractions, and you're not going to believe how we did ejection fractions. You projected the cine. You had a cine projector or a cine viewer. And so you put on the left ventriculogram and you put it on to the greatest ventricular volume, the height of diastole and okay. diastole. And you put on some tracing paper and with a pencil, you traced the ventricular contour. Remember, this is 1977. Sure. sure. Fair. Before AI. And before very much intelligence on my part, I'm not dead. <laughs> so anyway, so I put on the tracing paper, I traced end diastole, and then on the same piece of paper, I traced end systole. And then I read in the trusty book that I needed a protractor. So I went out, and I looked around that I couldn't find a protractor anywhere in radiology. 
I wasn't going to ask the cardiologist because I would sooner die. <laughs> and I uh, went and bought a protractor at the uh, Cornell Medical Bookstore. So the, the task was very cumbersome, but easy. I mean, even an idiot like me could do it. And I traced the diastolic contour, and then I traced the systolic volume and the curve uh, contour. And from that, it was very easy to calculate the ejection fraction. From then on, I learned how to inject green dye and do the cardiac output. I could do pullback pressures across the aortic valve or do a wedge and get the mitral gradient or pressure through the wedge. And I became a proper little cardiologist. In the meantime, the cardiologists were beginning to sense that things were not going well. <laughs> Lily I and his uh, cardiac cath patients were becoming somewhat hard to find. Okay. And the internists continued to send patients. And so they asked me if I would teach them how to do coronary angiography. And like a good little puppy, you know, in those days, I was not the favorite pet in radiology, because Joe Whalen was by now the chairman of radiology, and he was working very busily on not just the uh, single-plane CT, but trying to do primitive reconstructions and using CT to sort of do volumetric reconstructions, or at least in-your-mind reconstructions. Okay. Remember, CT at this point looked more like a Rorschach test than a diagnostic <laughs> exam. But he and Eli Kazam, my co-resident and then co-attending, he became the chief of uh, body imaging. And at that point, our cardiac echo consisted of bipolar ultrasound. Bipolar ultrasound sort of looked like the sonar that ships use to detect icebergs. I'm not kidding you. Okay. Because it was the summation of many of those. So this is where we were practicing medicine. Okay. So up to this point, angiography was king. Because sure. the only other special procedure was a nephrotomogram. I don't know what a nephrotomogram. I would have guessed it I would have guessed it was with the the kidney. Okay, so the IVP was as you know, they injected dye and they got it. A flat plate immediate before injection, immediately after injection when you got the nephrogram. Because it was really an IV arteriogram, or at least the arterial sure. and capillary phase. So they did an immediate film, and then they kept taking films, I think, at 5, 10, and 15 minutes, and then at the end, 30 minutes when the bladder was filled and the calices were filled. And they, they used to do tomography, usually for the chest, Mm -hmm. when they were looking for nodules. And the to tomogram was simply the x-ray tube would swing over yeah. the patient and record an image during its swing. So it was almost like a single slice, uh, but a very primitive slice. Right. So that was a tomogram. And then Dr. Evans began to do nephrotomography, which uh, crudely could detect intra-luminal filling defects, uh, stones, and as well, parenchymal bumps. Okay. Surface bumps. Sure. Or even parenchymal bumps or cysts, which had a different density. And that's when they began to learn that cysts had very sharp interfaces 
with the uh, you know, parenchyma, mm-hmm. where tumors bulged out and blah, 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 blah. So that was the science. But, you know, we were kings in angiography. And then Joe Whalen and Eli Kazam came along with bipolar ultrasound a year or two into my kingdom. Sure. And uh, they began to uh, do uh, CT. And Whalen made this his career to optimize CT and to improve it. Because at this point, there was even some question whether abdominal CT. I mean, I still remember when Hounsfield from England came to Mm -hmm. Cornell. And he gave, gave a lecture. He was one of the first lectures in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And he talked to us about this newfangled thing called computerized tomography. And he showed some images that were, like I said, a Rorschach test. Right, 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 right. But it re- improved very rapidly because people began to realize. However, there was some serious question in these days whether it would ever be applicable to the abdomen because of breathing sure or not right respiratory and bowel motion but they made pretty rapid advances to the point where three or four la- years later joe whalen was given the coldwell lecture on the american rentenary society i remember the meeting was up in and or i think it was montreal not toronto he gave the coldwell lecture on the rising role of computerized tomography in uh, diagnostic imaging. And, of course, he got a great ovation. And during his talk, he mentioned that computerized tomography was replacing angiography at Cornell and was going to replace it all across the world. And, of course, I'm sitting there and all my buddies are looking at me. Really? (laughs) We're being replaced? And and so I, uh, at this point, I had to redeem myself. And I joined the adoring crowd, milling around Whalen at the end of his lecture. And I finally sort of nuzzled up to him and I said, Joe, he was an egomaniac. Okay, okay. So are we all. But I said, Joe, wonderful lecture, certainly very exciting and uh I understand that uh, it will have its place, but at least you could have mentioned that we are still doing a lot of diagnostic arteriography and that we are beginning to do interventional procedures and they are taking up the slack and they are the new face of angiography slash interventional radiology. That would have saved my face. Sure. And he looked at me and if looks could have killed... (laughs) This one was deadly. On a good day. (laughs) And he looked at me for the last time in almost a year. From then on, he merely and often looked through me Uh at departmental conferences when he only called on me if it was absolutely unavoidable. (laughs) And it was a year before he actually spoke to me ever again. So in the meantime... Back to cardiology. Yeah. So all this is going on in the background. Okay. And uh, I didn't exactly have the best defenders available. So at this point, when the cardiologist said, you know, could we, uh, we'd like you to teach us how to do coronary angiography, we already know how to handle catheters sure. around the heart. So 
I said, well, okay. So I thought, I mean, you know, you could teach a monkey how to do coronary geography. Teach anyone how to do this stuff, sure. And you can teach anything to anyone. Well, once you get your MD, it's a license to kill. And uh, you're not supposed to, but... Yeah, <laughs> good tip for the younger guys. So here I was, you know, teaching the cardiologists how to do coronary angiography. So pretty soon it became a sort of tit for tat. If they had a cardiac cath to do, they would do a coronary angiogram on that patient. If I had a cardiac cath for Lily High, I would do a coronary angiogram on that patient. And we were going along. Everything was hunky-dory until I went to Switzerland. So at this point, I called myself the missing link. Because years previously, when I didn't do very well in college, I went to Queen's College before Harvard Med School. Mm -hmm. My dad, who was a physician, was from the Prussian-Hungarian families, and he was very Prussian in, in his enforcement of the rules. So when he began to realize that I was getting not only A's and B's, and the B's were bad enough for him, <laughs> but C's and D's, in college, and that this had been going on for a while, he basically invited me to leave our apartment, which was upstairs from his office in Forest Hills, and I got exiled to the office, and my stepmother snuck me food occasionally, and of course I had to be out of the office before office hours and couldn't return till 9 o'clock at night. Not great uh, arrangements. But in the meantime, he also told me that I needed to get out of day school, and I needed to get a job, because obviously I wasn't all that interested in studying. Sure, sure. Studying was, I never liked studying. In Hungary, they made you memorize, wrote real Prussian memorization without any meaning, or they didn't give a shit if you knew, or if you understood what you were saying, as long as you could recite it literally verbatim. Gotcha. And I still will never ever point forget the high point of my life. I was really good in geometry. Okay. And we were studying the definition of a point, a line, and a circle. You can sort of see how they belonged in one chapter. Okay. And uh, so you had to obviously memorize it. And he would call on the first guy. I was the first guy the teacher called on. And the moment you made a mistake, you left out a V or an A or a pre whatever. Mm-hmm. As long as you were not deciding what was in there, it didn't matter if you knew, understood it. Sure. So, had to be needless to say, I was done in two minutes. And then in mere 15 minutes, he examined the entire class. And so that was typical of school in Hungary. Gotcha. And uh, if I ever had any great enthusiasm for school, that killed it. <laughs> so here I was in America having to be a student at Queens College. I was probably a little bit dyslexic, too, but okay. nobody ever heard of that. Right. In any case, so here I was reciting all this stuff, or at least trying to memorize it, and it wasn't going well. And so he said, you've got to get a job. So I got a job. I knew some friend of a friend who worked at an insurance company, New York Life, downtown. Wow. Okay. And she gave me a job as sort of a gopher. And basically my job was since I was not completely stupid, to fill in. So if they needed somebody in accounting, they sent me over there. If they needed me in whatever part of New York life, they called her 
And I always had to check in with her in the morning, and she would assign me to wherever I was. So soon enough, I began to refer to myself as the missing link at New York Live. And so I became the missing link now at uh, Queens College, uh, where I was missing most of the time. Anyhow, so after I, I did pretty well during that semester because I realized that even studying was better than being the missing link. Sure. So I got back in day school. There's a reason why I began to tell this story. You're talking about being the missing link between cardiology and interventional radiology. That's okay. right. So, so I, so you know, I was I was the missing link because I taught them coronary angiography. Mm-hmm. I taught them how to do the cardiac cath. And uh, at this point, they realized that I was becoming a problem. At the same time, I went to Switzerland, and not only did I come back with the iliac balloon, but I also came back with a set of coronary angioplasty balloon catheters and guiding catheters. As the solitary, the first year, I remember I told you I was the only person in our Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And so it was very important to spread the word. Well, how do you spread the word uh, when nobody knows you exist? And so I made it my business to make sure there were never any cases scheduled when there was an important conference. And so I ended up going to GI conference, GU conference. At that point, uh, Irving Wright, who discovered Coumadin, was in charge of the medical peripheral vascular conference. Mm -hmm. And of course, I had to endear myself to Irving Wright. And I did, I must say, and he became a great supporter. Excellent. And I went to uh, the uh, urology conference, which became a big deal. And I found out that there was a hypertension conference, Hmm. which was run by Dr. John Lara. Dr. John Lara had just come over from Colombia. He practically invented renin. And he was the world's expert, no, seriously, in in, uh, renal vascular hypertension and hypertension. He was not a cardiologist, but he eventually became chief of cardiology, which is a whole other story, too. And it was a beauty. So here is John Lara, and I began to do angioplasties. I went to uh, Lara, and I said, can I come to the hypertension conferences? And, of course, when a renal artery stenosis came up, they began to discuss, you know, which surgeon to send it to. Okay, so, so they were managing that surgically at the time. Gotcha. Yeah. I I went to Dr. Lara and I said, you know, this newfangled stuff that I'm doing, you may have heard about me doing angioplasties. Would you be willing to let me try one on one of your patients? Mm-hmm. And he said yes. So I actually did one. Of course, they had the OR on standby. That okay. was routine for the first year or so. Okay. Not only at Cornell, but everywhere else. I was one of the first, if not the first. In New York, I was probably the first and one of the first anywhere in the world to do a renal. Okay. And I still remember I had absolutely no freaking idea what was going to happen when I blow up the balloon, (laughs) if I ever got that far. Sure. But at this point, you had done renal angiography. So renal angiography was... Renal angiography is easy. Gotcha. Now you had to get through the stenosis with... We did not have 018 guide wire. You know, you had a Benson or a Rosen J. 
that was about as, as good as 035, was about as good as you had. And uh, you didn't know about spasmolytics mm -hmm. because you didn't know about renal artery spasm until you induced it, which was not a good time to find out. Sure. So we wrote a lot of great papers on all the new things we met. But anyway, so I managed to get through this thing. I didn't do any harm. I actually got the artery opened. Lara was suitably impressed. And so that opened up a whole new channel. But in the meantime, I was still uh, doing primarily coronary angiography and some diagnostic angiography. And so I was going to the pediatric angiocardiography conference where I presented all the uh, imaging data. And then I would go to the adult cardiology conference where I would present the coronaries that I had done. And uh, so I was the missing link going to all these conferences, trying to beat the drums and to have everybody know I existed and everybody think that even if I wasn't, that I was the smartest, cutest, brightest, young. It was so, a sort of amazing to walk into any room and be the youngest and the smartest. And even though I wasn't all that cocky or confident, but act like I knew what, I, what the hell I was doing. Sure. And so I began to get referrals from all over and things began to grow. So in the meantime, I come back with the Grunzig coronary catheters and I go to one of the cardiology conferences. And of course, cardiologists, even though they like to pretend that they know everything and that they are really up, cool and up to date. Sure. In those days, not so much. Okay. So I'm sitting there and we are discussing a... Uh, 50% LAD stenosis that was symptomatic. And in those days, that was the same discussion as we had about somebody with claudication. The dictum for many years was that you didn't treat anybody with claudication. Because if anything went wrong, you could convert them into an entity. And that was not a great thing right. to do. And so we were extraordinarily conservative in how we approached every single stenosis, no matter where in the body. But in the coronary especially so, because the teaching was that if you had a mild to moderate focal single vessel lesion, unless it was a left main, you left it alone. Yeah. And it was a left main, you left it alone because that was a surgical case for mm -hmm. many, 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 many years to come. Because again, if something went wrong, sure. uh, it was curtains. Anyhow, it came to this case, and the learned ones discussed it and said, well, I think, you know, we're just going to have to watch him if he develops something more or something worse, or the uh, angina gets worse. So I spoke up, and I said, well, listen, you know, the angina is bad enough, and uh, he's complaining. Uh, he doesn't quite have rest pain, but he's pretty close. And... Uh, so I said, I think I've seen the future, and uh, I will be applying for an IRB in coronary angioplasty. What's that? And I said, well, you know, it's uh, what I've been doing for a couple of years now. You put in a balloon into a narrowing, and you huff and you puff, and you blow the stenosis out. <laughs> and they looked at me with their jaws falling over, and um, I could see them 
perking up and listening. Because stupid they were not. And I could see the wheels turning. (laughs) So I... The next day, I had a delegation in my office, and, and I, I told them that I was putting in the IRB, mm-hmm. and I would put the head of the cath lab, who was a protectorate. I will not mention his name. Okay. Uh, if it comes out, it comes out. He was a pretty tough, obnoxious guy. But I uh, told him that I was going to put him on as a co-investigator on the coronary angioplasty protocol. It was kind of fun, uh, a whirlwind anti-romance in the next two days, I uh, found out that uh, cardiology, of course, you know, there were no computers and there was no sure. email, but they wouldn't have used it anyway. They passed the word around to every single medicine person. We're talking about resident, fellow, attending, cardiologist, non-cardiologist, probably the nurses, I wouldn't be surprised if the cleaning lady also knew (laughs) that there were no further referrals to SAS for anything. Wow. Shots fired. So here I was, the uh, PI on coronary angioplasty. Mm -hmm. The only problem was I had no access to any patients. That's right. And at this point... I knew that John Lara was now the chief of cardiology, and he was my buddy. Okay. So I went to see my buddy, and of course I realized that uh, the heart is thicker than blood, <laughs> and <laughs> and I could go fly a kite, basically. Ouch. He said that he understood, and uh, he loves me dearly. However... Uh, as chief of cardiology, wearing sure. a different right, the chief hat, hat right. from being the uh, father of renal vascular hypertension. And incidentally, I had written a letter proposing him or supporting him for the Nobel Prize in Medicine, which he came within a whisker of getting, wow. he should have gotten. Mm-hmm. But in any case, so he said, look, I cannot go to war with the... Uh, Chief of cardiology. I mean, the chief of cardiology and the head of the cath lab over this, and it's their decision. So, you know, I will continue to send you and Jupasties. Listen, you know, when you're a beggar, <laughs> right? But that certainly launched you into a different part of your career that maybe had more legs than anything else, right? I mean. So this was this is the irony of how things uh, sure. how things turn out. Now, one one of the funny anecdotes. There was a very famous uh, internist at Cornell. the The guy's name was uh, Dr. Foley. Dr. Foley was about five foot four, a uh, very patrician, silver haired, comb back, straight. Uh, he was always in a uh, Double-breasted, uh, white coat. Okay, with his uh, name monogrammed. Very and, nice. Um, you know, and uh, he had this uh, hundred-year-old medical bag that he always slapped under his arm and walked around with it. So anyway, he was one of my referrers for coronary angiography, mm-hmm. and uh, he'd been an all-time internist. He was probably most famous for 
having been, don't ask how, but somehow affiliated with the U.S. military uh, during World War II, and he was stationed in China. Okay. And allegedly, uh, he was dabbling in all kinds of stuff, and among other things, he managed to lose the Peking man. And apparently, there was this very famous skeleton that was like the key to everything. <laughs> ah, like the missing, the true missing link. The true missing link. Dr. Foley managed to lose the freaking thing. Anyhow, so now he's back. Okay. And he is a very high society, not just doctor to the high society, but a part of it. Okay. So I had a, a patient of his scheduled for a coronary injury. I don't know what to be. Uh, down on the floor at nine o'clock, whatever, in the morning. Sure. And, you know, we are in the lab treading water, 9.30, no patient. So finally we called up to the floor and we said, where is this patient? And they said, oh, we are having some troubles with him, some difficulties. Okay. And uh, I said, you know, let me just go up and see what the hell is going on. Sure. So this was in what they called the towel. Okay. I don't know if you know the Cornell Medical... Not so well. So the New York, the Society of the New York Hospital, so 1930s building, very art deco with arched uh, Romanesque windows, white brick. I mean, it's a spectacular Beautiful. building. Sure. You can look it up later. And uh, the tower was the central building, and they had patient rooms all the way up, All and they were from the fifth or sixth floor up. They were all private rooms. Okay. And remember, this is talk going back to the 50s and 60s. There were no private rooms except for those who had a private room. Gotcha. Everybody else was in a four or six bedded ward. Right, right. So now, fortunately for me, the elevator service was terrible. And one of the reasons at 81, I'm so fit. <laughs> I'm still skiing. I'm still skiing double black diamond bumps off of the peak in Lech, Austria, and that snowbird, and you name it, and I'm biking 30, 40 miles at 16 miles an hour. Anyway, so the foundation for this healthy this fitness, right. fitness is that when they built the hospital, they didn't really give a shit about what people like the house staff or the nurses were doing. Sure. All they wanted to make sure was that the tower was well supplied. So there were four elevators that supplied uh, the private rooms in the tower. In the rest of the hospital, there were maybe three or four elevators for the ordinary pedestrians and plebeians. Right. And, and the radiology department in those days was on the sixth floor when I was a resident. So... You know, hospital floors, particularly in the old days, are double height yep. of ordinary. Mm -hmm. So back in 1969, I began to run up the stairs instead of waiting for the elevator because I was never very good at, wait, at, at waiting. Okay. So I would go running up, and everybody, when I came out or went in to the uh, staircase, would stare at me. And... Pretty soon it became clear that they thought I was crazy. And not for that reason alone, but they, you know, people were calling me the crazy Hungarian anyway because I was always <laughs> into everything and running and doing things. You know? 
<laughs> well, there goes that crazy Hungarian again. Sure. So running up the stairs, and I was running up to the steps at a time. Remember, I was in my 20s. Why right. not? Feeling good. Feeling good, man. And, 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 and. So, you know, here I'm running up. Uh, I would, very early on, a, uh, a uh, orthopod told me, do not even walk downstairs because all you are doing is pounding every one of your joints. Sure. So I tried to take the elevator down. Good luck with that. And I couldn't jump out the window that. <laughs> In any case, so I go running up to the 20th floor. Uh, I, are, I was on the fourth floor. Okay. So I'm charging up. And I arrived a little out of breath. And uh, as soon as I get off the elevator, I find myself in the middle of a carnival. And I look at him and say, what in the hell is going on? So I realized pretty quick, it wasn't a carnival, it was a resuscitation. Uh, yes. And uh, they were resuscitating, unbeknownst to me, my patient. Sure, sure. And Dr. Foley was standing off to the side with his little medical mm -hmm. bag, and he was getting a little impatient because it was 11.30. And I didn't know this at the time. So he's standing there. And the patient's family is standing around. And he, you know, the resuscitation is going on. And apparently the story turned out to be that he's a young guy in his early, mid-40s. who really did have angina. But young men, uh, and especially healthy young men, are more prone to vasovagal attacks or vagal attacks. Yeah. And uh, so this guy, when they tried to put the IV in him, went vagal, and then he slowed down to the point where they called the code. Okay. And, of course, you know, the family was standing around because this was still the 70s, and, uh, you know, not everybody was having a coronary injury. And uh, so they are all standing around watching the show, and so I arrive on the scene thinking, oh, my God, what, what am I getting involved in? And uh, Foley looks impatient, looks around, looks at everybody, looks at me, says, I'm leaving. I leave, and he had this phony British accent, I leave Dr. Sauce in charge. And with that, he re-slapped his little white bag and went off to lunch at the club. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That was the society of the New York hospital. Okay. So he was out of there. So I'd end the code or finished it up, such okay. as it was. Because fortunately, the nurses knew what the hell they were doing. Sure. And sure. the interns and residents knew what they were doing. I was looking like I knew what I was doing. So after, there's a reason I'm telling you this. So after the code is over and mm -hmm. I got the patient resuscitated. And so the... Wife of the patient comes up to me afterwards when things quieted down and, you know, we decided that that was not a good day to have his coronary angio. And so the wife comes to me, pulls me to the side and says, Dr. Sauce, I said, yes, thank you very much. Would you be willing to take my patient, my uh, husband on as your patient? Now, at this point, we were not admitting or seeing patients. Okay. And I said, look, I'm so sorry about you know, I'm a hospital employee. I only do the coronary angiograms, and I'm not actively, I, I don't have patients, and I don't see patients. And 
she looked at me and she said, well, I'm so sorry because you really seem like you're very caring and very knowledgeable, you know. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, she said, well, could you introduce me to the chief of cardiology and Ali will try to get him to see my husband. I looked at her and I said, you know, I don't know how to tell you this, but the chief of cardiology is not really a cardiologist. And she was like, what in the hell am I doing in this place? And what's my husband doing in this place? And my husband's doctor puts his bag under his arm and he goes off. She, She didn't know he was going to his club. Right. But, and then the doctor taking care of her husband doesn't see patients. And the chief of cardiology is not a cardiologist. Anyway, so... Circle back. Okay. So anyway, so I was basically told uh, that I couldn't do coronary and geography anymore. I was done. Okay. And at this point, I began to realize that I was in deep shit, and I really needed to take things more into my own hands. Okay. And I began to sort of lean more heavily on Dr. Ringwright, on some of the other internists who did peripheral vascular disease. And fortunately, there was a large group of them. And up to that point, they had rocking beds. And these beds, to restore or to get some circulation into these people who were severe claudicans and or limb loss, threatened limb loss, the beds would literally oscillate like this. Wow. Just tilt back and forth, raising the head, raising the leg, to try to get some blood in there. And so that was it. That's what they had. And low bar, low bar, incumbent. And incumbent. So anyway, so I began to talk to them. In the meantime, head of vascular surgery was a good southern boy named Malcolm Perry. This is another one of those. I don't know. Sure, sure. Uh, I don't really have a major issue because I'm telling the truth. Right. So Malcolm Perry came from Lubbock, Texas, where he was at the University of Texas, and the chief of surgery... Uh, was, um, should I think of his name when I don't need Okay. It. it was Tom, Tom somebody. Okay. Now, the chief of surgery was also the dean of the medical school. So he had a lot of hats he was carrying and a lot of power. So the chief of vascular surgery, who sent patients to me for an arteriogram mm-hmm. so he could operate, was very, very reluctant to help me do any angioplasties on his patients. Okay. I was doing some on, uh, there were a couple of vascular surgeons who were a little more willing to send me patients. I mean, this is a couple of years into this. And uh, so it's still very early on, and I'm still gathering my cases for Grunzig. Okay. Or maybe I had just been there. I can't remember. But anyway... Uh, this guy goes to national uh, vascular surgery meetings and tells everyone that in his good southern drawl, well, at Cornell, we've had nothing but troubles with angioplasty, nothing but complications. It's a disaster. This this was his lecture. Wow. And uh, so one day this got back to me. Or rather, I used to also lecture at vascular surgery meetings. Okay. So I, I either overheard it or heard it, and I went back to my chief, 
Dr. Whalen, okay, who just began to speak to me again, and I said, "Listen, Joe, you know this isn't good for you either, and uh, we really need to get this straightened out." And I knew that uh, the chief of surgery was his buddy. Yeah, and, and uh, so I said, "Listen, you got to talk to him, and we need to really get this straightened out." I had done maybe fifty cases by this. Okay, time. gotcha. And I said, "Look." I think the only way this will work is if you get the chief of surgery and the chief of vascular surgery and you and I sit down and I'll bring the 50 teaching files. Yeah. And we'll go through every case I have done. And then I will ask, you know, I'll show the complications. Of course. Of which there were a few. And nothing insane, but, you know. Yeah. When you do procedures, you get complications. In any case, I so he arranged the meeting, and the guy sat through it, and he was a little bit dumbfounded because he realized that he was a son of a bitch. That you could see that come across his face, yeah, the realization. And actually, even before this, I remember once he pulled me aside when I was trying to convince him to do an, to let me do an angioplasty on one of these one of his patients, and I looked at him and says, "Tom, do you?" actually know what the inside of an artery looks like? And I looked at him and I said, Malcolm, even at Harvard, we studied pathology in vascular pathology. <laughs> and he looked at me like looks could kill. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that was the background of all this. Sure, gotcha. Now, pretty soon I began to make some serious inroads and so it was getting to the point where they began to realize that I was beginning to eat their lodge. Not only was I doing the impossible cases, mm. not only was I getting internists to send patients. So all of a sudden, the vascular surgeons announced, and by the way, this was not just happening at Cornell. Sure. This was a national and international trend when everybody began to realize that we were eating their lunch, and if they didn't watch out, or rather if they didn't learn right. how to do angioplasty, they would pretty much run out of work. And so all of a sudden, they convinced the chief of surgery, mm-hmm. who was also the dean of the medical school, mm-hmm. that because up to then, we sort of had a, a franchise Actually, it was, I think, a written contract that radiology did all the angioplasty. Oh, wow. Now, that was a, we'll get back to cardiology in a second. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so they basically abrogated the whole deal, and they said, whoever is qualified can do it. Well, of course, they didn't know how to do it. Right. So that's when the surgeons all began to take two-week courses on how to do angioplasty. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how well that went. Sure. For the first year or two, they were doing their cases in our lab, and so I had first-hand uh, view sure. of the carnage, I mean, the wreckage. It was truly, you know, I mean, it was sort of like the Biden foreign policy. You can have a lot, too. <laughs> okay. But it was Afghanistan quadrupled okay. and all the rest of it because it was obvious they didn't know what the hell they were doing. They had no business doing it. And in fact, I, I gave a uh, lecture. So 
I was a regular at Barry Katzen's uh, course. I sat in uh, Miami sure. at this time. But I had also been to his course when he was in Virginia, when he was in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And Barry was one or two years behind me in residency at Cornell. And he and I had a difficult time because Barry decided not to do a formal fellowship. Okay. He, Harry Baltax, my, uh, the guy who trained me, did not like the fact that Barry was trying to do it short of doing a fellowship. Right. And uh, Pliny Rossi, who was sort of the star of Italian and geography, at that point had moved and worked at St. Uh, Vincent's in the village. And Barry Patson did sort of a rotation with Plinio. And soon Plinio moved back to Italy. Mm-hmm. And Barry went to Italy and spent a year working with Plinio. So he ended up doing a fellowship. Okay. Of, you know, basically. Right, right, right. And so here he was at at Alexandria and then in uh, Miami and running the course. And by this time, I realized that things were getting pretty bad with the vascular surgeons. And I befriended the chief of vascular surgery at the University of Colorado, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment because I didn't prepare well enough. That's okay. That's okay. At Rutherford, Bob Rutherford. Okay. Gotcha. And as soon as I try not to think about it, so Rutherford and I started talking at a vascular meeting. And in fact, he invited me to lecture. He had a meeting that he held in uh, uh, Vail. And he also spoke at Frank V's vascular meeting in New York. So he and I began to talk. And I said, you know what? This is totally insane that we are doing this. And I used the words. I said, Alan, we are fighting over vascular disease. And after all, it's all about the patient. Mm-hmm. And you guys are busily learning how to do badly what we already know how to do well. Mm-hmm. There ought to be a way that we can sort of work together. You have your expertise in surgery. We have ours in angioplasty. Maybe over the years we can evolve and change. But why don't we form a vascular center where we could even have some guys who are wound, wound healing specialists, sure, whatever. Right. So he and I began to work on this in the SIR and the SVS. Uh, developed a program, and we, he and I were the co-chairs. Right. Now, later, if you would ask Barry Katzen, he invented the concept okay. of the vascular center talks and conferences and conversations. With absolutely due respect to Barry, who really has invented pretty much everything else that has to do <laughs> with politics in vascular disease, I really was the first one to start this. Gotcha. Very caught up very quickly and joined. And so there were two things that Barry and I had a little bit of friction about. Mm-hmm. One was that my ex-boss, Harry Baltax, was down on him. And so for a couple of years, I didn't get invited to Miami mm-hmm. because my the guy who trained me sure. was insulting Barry. And this uh, was a little bit of a subterranean, never discussed. Gotcha. Uh, Boo-boo. And so one year, they, I got the, uh, I said, Tegmeyer, uh, well, yeah, the Tegmeyer lecture. Okay. And my topic was vascular centers, cool. question mark, the future. Mm-hmm. 
and I went into all this and yeah. including, you know, why are we, why are people busily doing how to do poorly what someone else already knows how to do well? If you are the patient, how does that make any sense? Of course. So in the meantime, we're back to the, uh, uh, back to Cornell, back to the heart, back to the peripheral vascular. And now everybody's doing it. And it was a free for all. Mm-hmm. And it was a free for all all around the country. So for years and years, I valiantly fought and I watched them doing all this nonsense. I mean, they did unbelievable stuff. At the same time, I was not only disinvited from having patients sent to me for coronary angiography, but given the fact that now the chief of vascular surgery, the chief of uh, cardiology and of hypertension, and the chief and everybody else was basically saying, you know, you are done in the heart. Wow. And so I doubled down on peripheral vascular disease, on renals that Lara was still very supportive of. But honestly, no matter how tough I was, and this was really before we began to see patients. Mm-hmm. And it was sometime around this time that I, I actually did organize a vascular center at Cornell. Wow. And I had one of the vascular surgeons who was actually a friend, and then the guy who was the uh, chief of the burn unit, not burn unit, he was a wound healing specialist. So okay. we set up a vascular center with the blessing of the chief of, vas- of the chief of surgery, although the guy who was chief of vascular surgery was not crazy about the idea. So it became, it lasted a very short time. So we had uh, three guys, and then of course, uh, one of, uh, a couple of the vascular surgeons who were not included because they were asses, and uh, we didn't want them. And we were just getting them. We, we had our own uh, sure. board assigned and our nursing staff. We were training people. Cool. But then they cut it. Really? How long were you guys up and running? A couple of months. We were just beginning to get sure, sure, organized. Sure. So then I uh, looked at the two guys I was doing this with, and I said, hey, guys, you know, there is this... Uh, cardiac hospital called St. Francis out on Long Island. And it was one of the most prominent cardiac surgery programs anywhere in the country. Mm -hmm. They had a terrific reputation. And one of our ex-radiology residents was now the chief of radiology. Okay. And so I said, you know what? Why don't we uh, go where the, uh, you know, the old uh, thing with... uh, why do you rob banks? Yeah. Because that's where the money is. So I so said, why, why, why don't we just go where the patients are, vascular patients? Mm-hmm. I said, I know that St. Francis is a very active cardiac surgery program, and I also know that they do nothing in peripheral vascular disease. And I know so because I know the chief of radiology. Right, right, right. So I organized a set of meetings between the three of us and uh, the head of the hospital, and then uh, chief of uh, uh, cardiac surgery, and all sorts of various people, and we begin to explore how it would look. And they just could not understand why anybody would want to do that. Hmm. It was that foreign a concept 
they did coronary angioplasty, they sure. did coronary artery surgery, but the leap into peripheral vascular disease was something they hadn't even thought of. Wow. And so at first we were very excited and we thought this was all going to work. And the next thing we knew, a couple of months later, they said, you know what, I, I don't think we can really do this. And then, of course, a year or two later, they started their own. <laughs> they did it? Yeah, they now have a very yeah. active sure. angioplasty and peripheral vascular service. So timing is everything. Mm-hmm. Where you are is everything. And even though I had done the first angioplasty at Cornell, I had done the first stent of any sort at Cornell. I did ask Eric Martin, he had from Columbia, I had to, well, I didn't have to hide because I had offered him a position. Sure. So, you know, I, I said, I called him and I said, listen, Eric, you've done a couple of drainages. I'm trying to get that going here at Cornell, but uh, they are very reluctant to send me any patients for nephrostomies and for uh, abscess drainages and mm-hmm. stuff like that. They said it's very dangerous and seed the tract and, you know, the usual crap. And uh, could I invite you to give grand, grand rounds and I'll try to get everybody else to come and perhaps, you know, you can help me to uh, get that moving. And sure enough, he came over and we did that. And uh, because of the renals, I continued to have a pretty decent volume. So actually, I wanted to dig in a little bit into the renals because only I thought that may segue and you can correct me, but, um, you know, something I reach for on a daily or at least very weekly basis is the sauce catheter. And I thought maybe that innovation was kind of born out of necessity. If you're doing a lot of renals and then you're starting to do a lot of renal interventions that you need catheters that are appropriately fit for that task. Actually, the first thing well, the invention is a very interesting thing. Very early on, I uh, came up with the idea of a microcatheter. And the sauce open-ended guide wire was made in the 80s by USCI Bard. Mm-hmm. And it was the first microcatheter. And believe it or not, I even came up with the idea of trying to make that into various diagnostic catheter shapes. And I wrote to Bard, and I had asked them to do that. I also asked them to put an angioplasty balloon on that with a tip occluder. Wow. And a little hole for a balloon. And many years later, Cook actually made such a thing. Sure. So for angioplasty, the first thing I did was I uh, took the Benson wire, and I just put a curve on the tip so that the benzene wire could cross into the renal artery without poking a hole and sort of going to one of the branches. Gotcha. And then I, believe it or not, invented a couple of other guide wires. One was the so-called New York Hospital wire. Okay. That was a modification of the Rosen. And ironically, I took the Rosen J-tip, which was a very stiff tip, mm-hmm. and it didn't really fit into a renal artery branch, and I straightened that out. So now I had a stiff catheter that could go into a branch and was stiff enough. Remember, we had very large, blunt, uh, five, six, and seven French. Uh, at that point, we, were, we had six and seven French catheters. Yeah, yeah. And crossing across, uh, even if you have the guide wire across, 
pushing it across a stenosis was not so easy. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we didn't get into how in the early days there were no pre-shaped catheter shapes. They were very, very expensive, which is why they got re-sterilized. Mm-hmm. So the coronary catheters got re-sterilized, and uh, cobras, which were around, and uh, that was pretty much it. Uh-huh. And so everything else you had to make yourself out of what we called kefa tubing. It was red kefa rubber tubing that came in big reels, and after the cases were done, the nurses and I would sit down and make catheters. Wow. And you made catheters by cutting off the length of the catheter wire. And then you took one end and you held it into a Bunsen flame. That's right. And that flared the end. And you had the cap and a, um, a locking piece that screwed okay. together. The cap went under the flare and the locking piece went and screwed into it. And so they held, um, so that was the uh, injection end. Yeah. And then uh, you took the other end and you put it over high over the Bunsen flame and you gent- and you had a guide wire, an 018038, mm-hmm. well, 035, sure. guide wire inside, and you gently pulled the two ends of the catheter over the wire to taper it. Wow. And you took out the um, wire, dunked it into cold water, and with a razor blade, cut it, and then on some very fine sandpaper, you sanded it smooth so the tip of the catheter would be nice. I even made pigtails, and they were deemed to be too expensive. Sure. By curving the tip and putting inside. So I had a little advanced knowledge of how to make catheters. That didn't hurt. Of course. Then, so then I came up with the open-ended guide wire. But even prior to that, I said, you know, to to Boston Scientific, they made the first really nice angioplasties, uh, catheters, and they were seven French for the renals. Wow. And so I said, why don't you, and it was very, you know, they were fairly stiff, and to make the right angle turn from the aorta into the renal artery, it was a bit of an art. Sometimes you'd pull the wire out. And so I would pre-curve the shaft of the wire, the stiff part of so it would fit at the orthorenal angle. So okay. now I had the tip curved a little bit, and I had the shaft curved at a right angle. But in addition, I had Boston Scientific, not steam, but make the renal, curves, renal catheters with the sauce curve. So the tip was curved. So as the catheter went over the wire and mm-hmm. it reached that right angle bend, Instead of pulling the wire out of the renal artery and up into the aorta, it followed the wire because the beak pointed, sure. if you turned it the proper way, into the renal artery. So that was one of my first other ideas. Then I hurt my back uh, very, in, I can tell you exactly, because my son was born in 1980, and I, used, I lived on the west side of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And in those days, I commuted to work from the west side of Manhattan to the Upper East Side to Cornell by jogging. Wow. And and so I jogged. Not only did I run up the stairs, but I jogged. And again, that was not an everyday activity. Okay. Well, it was beginning to get there. So anyway, I hurt my back jogging 
and I had an acute herniated disc. Ooh. And I was, in 1980, I was uh, 38. The treatment at that time was you lay on your back for a month <laughs> and do nothing. I literally could not carry a carousel. Mm -hmm. And so I said, how the hell am I going to do angel with the lead apron? So I went to work, and I actually have a lecture called How to... I should have sent that to you before we did this. What, what's the lecture? But the title is Invention and Innovation, How To. So that's why it sort of pissed me off that it took SIR up to this year to give me the <laughs> Innovation Award. It was like, <laughs> what the hell have you been waiting for? So um, I, I knew that I couldn't... And I couldn't, I couldn't put all that apron, but I also couldn't not do cases. So I had a uh, fellow called Sue Hilton, who was about five foot two, and uh, coincidentally, one of my, uh, one of her fellow fellows was a guy who had just come from Syria. His name was Suhail Sadekni. So I said, I have Suhail and Sue Hilton, and so I finally would figured out. Sue was already wearing all sterile stuff, and she was very little. So I would put on a sterile gown, you know, get, get all sure, dressed sure. up, except yeah, yeah. without a light apron. Okay. Put my arms around her and literally work over her shoulder <laughs> and around her waist <laughs> uh, during critical periods when I needed to do something. So I said, one day I said, you know, Sue, you really are an idiot to uh, let me do this. And uh, I called her, you're a dummy. And so then I invented the dummy. The dummy consisted of two, two IV poles yeah. with a broomstick across tied together and two lead aprons. The whole thing yeah. covered with uh, sterile sheets. And, that, and then I got all dressed up and I worked behind it. Well, that was great. Until somebody leaned on it and the whole country had a felony patient and the entire sterile field was gone and it was done. So then came dummy number two, which was a pneumatic, height-controllable, lead-moving uh, thing formed almost like a Roman chariot with a, an angle, angular wings. And it had a pneumatic height adjustment and it rolled on roller bearings and it was commercially made. And they were just beginning to sell it, and that's the end of this story. So that was my one of my first inventions, the sauce chariot. It's a sauce chariot. Okay, well done. If and when you have time, I mean, I'm not even. I haven't yet begun. I haven't even scratched the surface. Well, a lot of a lot of rich stuff to dig into. Um, Tom, thank you so much for donating some of your time on Saturday. I'm glad we were able to get you up and running. To our audience, thank you for listening. If you guys enjoyed the show and want to check out the podcast and, and what more notes on this, um, we'll put out some show notes. And those can be found at www.backtable.com. And remember, the show notes are where you can find uh, free CME to some of our um, older um, podcasts. For those interested in supporting the show, like, subscribe, share the podcast on social media. Dr. Sauce, Tom, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate you sharing your stories and we might have to get you back on to kind of get into some of the other stuff. Well, Chris and uh, Josh, I want to thank both of you. Truly appreciate it. Of course. Well done, sir. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. 
If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louis Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 